All right, let's look at our first text from 1 Corinthians 1. This is 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. It can be found on the back of your bulletin or on the screen. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. Well, I'd like to start this sermon series off with a quote from a movie, The Amazing Spider-Man. And if you'll remember, it's at the end of the movie, and uh, Peter Parker is in class, and uh, the teacher makes a statement that there are only ten different plots in fiction is what her mentor told her. And she said, I believe there's only one. Who am I? And I want to suggest that art is imitating life. Because in life, there really is only one question we need to answer. Who am I? And why is that question so important? It's important because we will live out of who we are. Whatever is in here will ultimately manifest itself out there. We may stray from it, we may run from it, but invariably we will be drawn back to it, for it is who we are. And when you look around the world, you will see that all of creation invariably lives with this truth. A tiger always acts like a tiger, right? Because that's what it is. It does tiger things. An apple tree will bear apples, for that's what it is. It is its nature. It is its identity. Indeed, everyone and everything in the world lives inerrantly and consistently with who they are, except for one class of creature, Christians. It may surprise you that it is Christians who are the only creatures who are capable of hypocrisy. That's a pretty bold statement. Better back it up, right? Let me define hypocrisy. The world's definition of hypocrisy is acting different than you feel. But the biblical definition of hypocrisy is acting different than who you are. There are two types of humans. The Bible divides all of humanity into two types of humans. Those who are born again, new creations in Christ, and those who are not. And it is actually non-believers, those who do not follow Christ, who live consistently with their nature. They do not love God, they do not want to follow him, and so they do not. Non-Christians act 
consistently with their nature. Now you may say, wait a second, I, I know nice people who are not Christians. Are What's going on there? Remember being nice doesn't mean that you love God. And we know that every good and perfect gift comes from God, that God extends a common grace to all of humanity that saves us from killing each other, frankly. But Christians love God and want to obey him and desire to follow him, yet sometimes we do not. Now we need to examine that a little bit. If one claims to be a Christian and their life shows no fruit of following Christ, that is a definite problem. Jesus said, judge a tree by its fruit, right? But we can be a Christian and look from time to time very much like the world. Now, why am I sharing all of this? Well, it's because we're going to look at the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church has a problem. And that problem is that they are living inconsistently with who they are. Corinth was a city very much like ours when you think about it. It was a port city. It was an important place where people brought their goods into Greece and it would travel through Corinth into Athens and into uh, the continent. And so it uh, was a port city and there was lots of trade and lots of different types of people and many gods that were worshiped. And Corinth was a culture much like ours moving in the opposite direction of God. And the Corinthian church was succumbing to the pull and the lure of the culture. And the result is when you looked at the behavior of the Corinthians, you saw dissensions, self-centeredness, arrogance, sensuality, and immorality. And the result was a lack of joy in the church and a lack of impact in the world. And so Paul is writing the Corinthians to remind them of who they are and to challenge them to live out of their identity. And in the same way, in this series, I wanted to challenge us to examine our own lives. Are we acting in line with our identity? Because the challenge before us as the church is to live out of our true identity in this earthly world. And so Paul, before he goes into all of the problems and issues that the Corinthians are experiencing, writes this welcome that's here before us today to remind them of who they are. And in this passage, Paul reminds them that they have received three things from Jesus Christ. Number one, they have received his calling, a calling to be a new creation. Number two, they have received his gifts, his gifts to sustain them as they live out this new life. They've received his calling, they've received his gifts, and they finally received himself. So let's look at these passages, excuse me, at these points. Number one, his calling. We see verse one that Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. He's writing to the church that he planted. He and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos spent 18 months in Corinth sharing the gospel and out of that evangelism, a church was planted. 
And Paul is now in Ephesus sharing the gospel with the Ephesians, and he's writing a letter to the Corinthians because of what he's hearing that's going on. And he says in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord. He's saying, Corinthians, you're part of a bigger body, right? This church of God. You know, it's the church of God that is in Corinth. It's not the Corinthian church. In the same way, we are part of the church of God that meets in Virginia Beach. And he calls them those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. This word sanctified in Christ Jesus, the, the word in the Greek is agiazo, that comes from the root agios, which means blameless, pure, and clean. And so agiazo means to make blameless, pure, and clean. In other words, this is who you are. You have been made blameless, pure, and clean in Christ Jesus. You have been set apart. We see this concept in the Old Testament, right? Where God sets apart things for himself. We know in God's nature, Psalm 5.4 tells us, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. In other words, God is the ultimate pure and blameless and holy one. And in order to dwell with God, you must also have these characteristics. Otherwise, you may not dwell with God. And so God set apart, made holy things in the Old Testament. Think of the temple, which we're going to look at, in a, or the tabernacle. Think of the temple, how God said, I will put my presence there, I will dwell, and therefore you need to sanctify to make holy the various vessels in the temple so I may dwell there. And the way they did that, the way that they um, made those, they sanctified the vessels of the temple is through blood. It was blood that cleansed the vessels in the temple. And we also see that as God took a people and called them his own, Israel, right? A people that were taken out of the world and made acceptable to God and for God. In Exodus 19, 6, God said of Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the way that he brought them to himself is through blood. Hebrews 9.18 puts it this way. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and the branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all of the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. It goes on, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But what's going on? Is God barbaric? Is this some barbaric practice? No, rather, we need to understand that there is a cost to unholiness. In order for unholiness to become holiness, that cost must first be paid, right? 
Think of something as simple as when you have a debt with your credit card company. In order to be made right or made whole with the company, that debt must be paid. And the shedding of blood is for the forgiveness of sin. But what God did in the Old Testament was imperfect, wasn't it? It was a stopgap. It didn't penetrate to the heart. It was from the outside in. But Paul is drawing upon the fact here that a deeper sanctification has happened in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> that we have been made, if you are a follower of Christ, blameless, acceptable, and pure in Christ. Hebrews 13, 12 puts it this way. And so Jesus also suffered outside of the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. That we were sanctified in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 7, 27. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. He has eternally sanctified his people through the one-time offering of himself. All Christians are righteous and holy in God's sight through faith in Jesus Christ. The Christian's sins have been washed away and the righteousness of Christ has been credited to him or her. You have a new status in Christ, but it goes even deeper than that. That if we are a Christian, we have a new nature, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. There's a fundamental change that has occurred in those who are believers. Paul continues on that you are called to be saints. The word saints means the pure ones, the holy ones, the righteous ones. See, if you are a Christian, you are a saint. Do you understand that? Are you saying, Carlos, that Christians are not sinners? And the answer is yes. Once again, a controversial statement. I did not say that Christians did not sin or do not sin. But Christians, we know that Christians do still sin, right? 1 John 1.8 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But we know that the heart that we have been given in Christ is a new creation. But our body is not. In our flesh, in this old part of us, we have a tendency to want to live independently of God. We, as Christians, have the capacity and ability to sin and the ability not to sin. See, that's very different from an unbeliever. A sinner does not have the ability not to sin. An unbeliever will always sin, no matter how it looks on the outside. So when I'm speaking about sinner, I'm speaking about a sinner is not just something you do, it's someone that you are. It's a description, it's a description of being. 
And what Paul is saying to us is that we are no longer sinners. We are saints who can and do still sin, but it is not our fundamental nature. And notice what Paul says, that you are called, you have been called to be a saint. You didn't figure this out. This is not some sort of self-help program that you engaged in and somehow managed to come to this new status. No, this is God's work in you. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of the prodigal son. You all are probably familiar with the story, right? Remember the younger son who was tired of living under the old man and essentially communicated to the old man, I want what's coming to me, but I really don't want to be your son anymore. So give me my share of the inheritance, and I'm taken off. And what's even more amazing is the father granted his request, right? And off the son went. And in the son's eyes, he ceased to be a son of the father. But in the father's eyes, it was quite different, wasn't it? See, the son never ceased being the son to the father. We think that the story of the prodigal son is about the son finally coming to his senses and coming home, right? While the father waits on the porch expecting for him to come. But the prodigal son story, the parable, is actually Jesus condemning the Pharisees for their unwillingness to go out and find the lost son and to bring him home to his father. And what Jesus is actually communicating in that parable is that I am the elder son who you were supposed to be Pharisees, and I am. And going, my, I have sent my son to go find my other son and to bring him back and to restore him to who he was meant to be. To put the family ring on his finger and my cloak on his shoulders to regain his identity. And so I ask you the question, how do you see yourself? Fundamentally a saint or a sinner? If we listen to what the world says, we're tempted to believe that we are not who God says we are. Indeed, if we look at our behavior often, we are tempted to say this is not true. But the fact that we still sin does not disqualify us from who we are. It simply means that you are a hypocrite, and so am I. Being a Christian does not mean that you are perfect. It means that you're a new creation in Christ and forgiven. The Corinthians are looking at the world 
And they're concluding that they are no different. Maybe you're doing the same thing. But we are called not to look at the world. We are called to look at Jesus Christ, the one who called us to be saints. For we have been washed and purified in him, and we are a new creation, and the cross proves it. You see, my friends, only God can tell you who you are. Because he is the one who made you and the one who redeems you if you are in Christ. And whatever you're going through right now, his calling and his gifts are irrevocable. His calling stands. So we must stand in his calling. This brings me to my second point, his gifts. Jesus, excuse me, Paul Jesus, through Paul, says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul is extending to them the grace and the peace that is theirs through Jesus Christ. And I want to talk about grace specifically. Some of you have heard this definition of grace, God's unmerited favor and love and it's accurate see the calling we have the identity we have we are who we are because he chose to make us so in his love did we deserve it absolutely not you know some people say that love is blind but I actually believe that true love sees the clearest God saw in us what he created us to be, what we were meant to be. And we were so unlovable that the cost to redeem us was literally the price of the Son of God. Think about how valuable you are. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in sins. It is by grace you have been saved. It is this great love of God in Jesus Christ that he loved, if you will, for both of us. His love for us. And the love that we should have had for him, he substituted. And all of our wrath and animosity and hatred, he absorbed through his death on the cross. In order to transform us, to begin this process of transforming us into who we were meant to be. That grace has transformed us. And Paul is saying that that grace continues to sustain us. Notice verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Paul is saying that God opened your eyes and gave you the knowledge of this grace in Jesus Christ. You need to understand that in the city of Corinth, there were these professional orators who would come in. It was sort of the, the original uh, uh, Tony Robbins, self-help speakers who would who would come in and they would charge a fee for their entertaining rhetorical displays as they advised people on how to 
advance socially and economically in the world. But Paul is saying that God through Christ has given you the knowledge of the truth. Indeed, he's also given you speech, the ability to speak truth, to counter the lies of the world. Even as the testimony, verse 6, about Christ was confirmed among you. In other words, you heard the gospel, the spirit came, you were transformed, and you started out strong. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to the church, to you and me, that we are not lacking in any gift as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying that we have the ability to withstand the world through grace, to live in holiness in a fallen world through grace. The Corinthians are succumbing to the world, but they don't have to. And we don't either. We have a new identity and new resources. See, it's very easy as a Christian to fall prey to what I call the twin evils of pride and despair. Sinning as a saint can cause two opposite and equally wrong reactions. On the one hand, we can respond with prideful presumption that we have the ability in our power to overcome sin. And on the other hand, we can react with helpless despair in the face of our persistent sin. Let me unpack that. Because we've known both of these things and may be experiencing them right now, right? See, pride deceives us into indifference and apathy concerning the means of God's grace. We assume that everything is under control, right? I'm strong, I'm capable, I'm knowledgeable, I'm devoted. And we overestimate our ability to fight sin's temptation in our own strength. But sometimes we fall into despair where we feel helpless in fighting sin. Our old patterns of sin seem insurmountable. And our despair lies to us saying that there's nothing that we can do. So we might as well indulge that desire again. Paul is telling us that our ability to fight sin and to do good works is a gift. As 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do you have that you did not receive? Receive. Every temptation resisted, every thought captured, every sin killed is accomplished by the grace of the Holy Spirit's power at work in us. Grace gives control of us back to ourselves. God does the miraculous work of making us alive and the equally miraculous work of restoring our fallen nature. And therefore, in Christ, when we resist sin, it really is us resisting it. The ability that God restores in us is a real ability which is active as we rely on him. And we will win battles against sin in this life. But we should not expect to win the war. 
See, we have the ability not to sin, but not the ability to eradicate sin. Our ability in the fight against sin then is incomplete until Christ comes again. He's made it so that we must rely on him moment by moment. And so we have the gifts of grace and the privilege and responsibility to walk in holiness in accordance with our new identity in Christ. And we can do so as we depend on him. I've given this illustration before, so forgive me, but it seems very apropos. And it's the story of the scorpion and the frog. Remember? There's a scorpion and a frog, and they're on the side of the uh, uh, bank. And there's this river, and the scorpion wants to get across. And so he says to the frog who's over there, take me across to the other side. And the frog says, absolutely not. If I get near you and I put you on my back, you're going to sting me while we're swimming across, and I'm going to drown. Why would I do that? And the scorpion says, that's insane. Of course I'm not going to do that. If I sting you while we're swimming across, we'll both drown and I'll die. And so the frog, in his frog logic, goes, okay, and puts the scorpion on. And as they're swimming across, he feels the sting as the scorpion stings the frog. And the frog, as he's dying, says, why would you do this? We're now both going to drown. And the scorpion said, I can't help it. It's who I am. Do you feel that way about sin in your nature? I can't help it. It's who I am. Some of us live in a perpetual state of despair continually succumbing to those things that have a hold on us and won't seem to let go. Bitterness, envy, gossip, pornography, driving us to even ask the question, am I even a Christian? But the scriptures are clear. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The answer to the Corinthians and the answer to us is not pride. Try harder. Stop screwing up. Figure this out. See, we can only live out who we are in him. If you take a piece of lead and you throw it in the water, it will sink, right? It's captive to the law of gravity. But if you take that piece of lead and you tie it to a piece of wood and you throw it in the water, it will float, right? It's not that the law of gravity has disappeared. It has simply succumbed to a higher law, the law of buoyancy. See, we are a new creation in Christ, but our flesh continues to pull us down. We were designed in this new creation to be empowered by Jesus Christ. 
See, I was very interesting. I have this clock here. Problem was the clock ran down. Okay, it was built to be a clock. It was made to be a clock. But the only way for this clock to run is to put the batteries in. We are a new creation in Christ. But Christ is the battery. Without it, we will succumb to living the life and reverting back into the identity we once were, even though it's not us. God has given you his spirit. You are not the answer, but you are an actor. So look to God's grace and God's power. For he has called us and he's given us his gifts. The challenge before us is to be who we are in Christ in this world. His calling stands, so stand in his calling. Which brings me to my last point, himself. God has given us himself in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, God has given us more than his grace. He's actually given us himself. In fact, his grace and himself are the same. Jesus Christ is the grace of God, right? The scriptures tell us that all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. And we see here that God has called us into fellowship with Christ Jesus. The word fellowship here is koinonia. And you can translate that, define it as the share which one has in anything. Participation, contact fellowship, intimacy. See, those who believe the gospel are united through the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And notice what it says here. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. It went from the spirit of God to the spirit of Christ to Christ himself. Well, who is it? And the answer is yes. The spirit is Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean there? I'm not saying that the Spirit, there are three persons in one God, right? But the ministry of the Holy Spirit has become so synonymous with the ministry of Jesus Christ and what he's doing in our lives that even in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, now the Lord is the Spirit. The Spirit is very bashful, right? The Spirit's job is to reveal to us the Son and the Father. The Spirit, Christ, is dwelling in us. And notice what it says. If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. See, it's no different when you think about it that what the 
than what the first apostles experienced as Jesus walked among them. Right? The word became flesh and dwelt in their midst. Well, the word became spirit and dwelt in our midst. Even deeper, dwelt inside of us. And God and Jesus calling to the apostles was to follow him. Right? That's how you called a, a disciple. They had a saying when a rabbi called a disciple, may your, may your cloak be caked with the dust of your rabbi. Meaning you would walk so closely behind him, the dust of your sandals would kick up and cover your cloak. And as these disciples walked closely with Jesus, they witnessed miracles. And Jesus said to these disciples that you will do greater things than these. And Jesus gives them his spirit. And you know what is the next book in the Bible after the Gospels? It's the book of Acts, right? You ever wonder how the name the book of Acts got the name the book of Acts? It didn't come from Luke. Luke never named his second uh, letter the book of Acts. It actually came from Irenaeus in the late second century, and he named the book the Acts of the Apostles. But I actually think that that name is not exactly right. A much more accurate name is the Acts of Jesus Christ working in the Apostles through his Holy Spirit. See, what the disciples experienced is no different than us. Jesus says to you and to me, I am the vine, and you are the branches. The question is, will we give him the throne of our lives? Will we allow ourselves to be led by Jesus Christ as he says to us moment by moment, follow me? I don't know if you've gotten to spend much time watching the, the series, The Chosen. I really like it. If you're wondering what that is, it's a depiction of the life of Jesus Christ with the disciples. And they, they go deeper into the, the story and the nuances of the personalities and the histories of the various disciples. And I, I recommend it. Uh, is it the Bible? No. Does it have elements of the Bible? Absolutely. Does it fill in other things that are extra biblical? Yes. But it shows these disciples and the decisions, the lives, the, the decisions that they made to follow Jesus Christ as they walked with him. And the reason that I like seeing it is because it reminds me and helps me to understand and to see that every day Jesus is with me and calls me to follow him to trust him, to be led by him. The Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force, like the thing that George Lucas came up with, with Star Wars. It's Jesus with us. And if there's anyone that you can trust and give your life to on a moment by moment basis, it's the one who lived and died to set you free.
So I've been prattling on for a while. I need to close up. The point I want to make, my friends, is God has called us to a life of holiness and power in him that we shall experience as we walk imperfectly, moment by moment, after him. I want to read you a poem that I heard a long time ago that has stuck with me. It's called The Touch of the Master's Hand. It's about a violin. Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried, who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, then two, only two, two dollars, and who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, the loosened strings, he played a melody pure and sweet as a caroling angel sing. The music ceased and the auctioneer with a voice that was quiet and low said, what am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars, and who'll make it two? Two thousand, and who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried, we do not quite understand. What changed its worth, swift came the reply, the touch, the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once and going twice. He's going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. The challenge before us, as it was for the Corinthian, is to be who we are in Christ in this world. His calling for you still stands. So stand in his call. Let's pray. Christ, you are with us and in us and you have redeemed us and made us a new creation and you call us to live out who we are in you as we surrender ourselves moment by moment to the touch of your hand. God, help us to see the beauty and the hope that is in you and to succumb to your grace. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.